Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the July issue and I'm joined with Nada Khan, one of our associate editors. Um, our other two associate editors are enjoying a bit of leave this week, so it's just the two of us today. And we'll talk a little bit about um, the July issue, which was all about prescribing. And in fact, actually, we did consider, seriously consider, uh, theming this issue deprescribing, because I think many of the papers fall quite nicely into that um, idea around it rather than anything else. And having the, and for us, it's about knowing when to stop prescribing, when not to prescribe, when it's inappropriate to prescribe, and for those that are prescribed, sometimes stopping as well. Uh, certainly fits in, in and around many of the papers. Um, my editor's briefing this month was a little bit about universal basic income. And um, uh, if you've not heard of UBI, it's this idea that we give a universal grant uh, to uh, to everybody. Really, it's a, almost like a, a right of citizens. And there's some interesting uh, data that has emerged around the health benefits of universal basic income. And... Um, Obviously, the briefing's just very short and I can't say too much about it, but I'd encourage everybody to have a little look at UBI, have a little bit of a think about it. There are plenty of unanswered questions, but there's some studies and some pilots that have already happened around the world that suggest it could be beneficial. You know, areas like improved neonatal nutrition, improved health outcomes in later life, um, potential gains in mental health. But perhaps more than anything, it just helps address the the chronic, pervasive psychological stress that accompanies poverty and long-term health conditions as well. We know they're implicated in conditions like cardiovascular disease uh, and even things like upper respiratory tract infections. And so actually, it's just a, it looks like an incredibly promising upstream intervention that could address poverty at, um, at the at very basic level. Um, there's undoubtedly lots of different discussions and arguments about how it might work or wouldn't work. But I certainly think it's worth a look. How would, did you know much about UBI NADA before you'd looked at, looked at this editorial at all? No, not much, actually. And um, I mean, you've written about it in the editor's briefing. And then Sarah Blake's written um, uh, an article in the Life and Times section of this article, uh, of this issue as well, about uh, UBI and trauma-informed healthcare. So I think it's worth a read. And there's some interesting ideas. And I think certainly it's uh, food for thought and something to sort of consider when we're thinking about these different, uh, perhaps some somewhat neglected areas of healthcare as well. Yeah, it's definitely not, a, you know, it's not something you're going to be discussing with a patient when they're sitting in front of you in the clinic. It's not that kind of intervention. It's much more on the public health side. But I think we're so far downstream in general practice that it's nice to pay attention to some of the upstream measures that could make a difference as well. Um, what about other editorials, Nada? What did you pick out? I guess the first one to mention is um, Claire Gerada's call to arms editorial, really, um, where she discusses general practice and crisis, as, as, she, as she writes about. Um, and she touches upon quite a few different areas in this article. She talks about GP training and the length of training, um, some of the relationships between primary and secondary care, uh, mentions that she thinks that having hospital doctors train a bit more in general practice is a good idea. Um, and mentions a bit more about GP job plans, organization of primary care, and looking after our own mental health needs as GPs. Um, and it's quite a provocative article, I think. And I, I'd really like to hear what some of the readers think about her suggestions and solutions to fix our broken primary care system, as uh, Claire feels it is. So, Yeah, interestingly, um, 
Uh, we've not had a great deal of correspondence about it so far, but I know it got a lot of attention on social media and on Twitter and a lot of discussion and um, a lot of interest and uh, in some of the measures that Claire suggested. There are also occasional bits of hostility. Uh, Claire is careful to steer around, I think, in this editorial, but she hasn't necessarily been a universal supporter of the partnership model or has been prepared to consider Absolutely. other models. And I know that that does antagonise some GPs in some quarters. Mm. But that's really not what this editorial is about. It gets mentioned towards the end and Claire readily acknowledges her position on that as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's quite provocative. And I think uh, triggered by... My understanding with Claire is that it was very much triggered by that uh, period we had and perhaps are still going through when NHS England suggested that general practice was closed and needed to open. Mm. It was handled rather clumsily by them and uh, invoked a fair amount of fury amongst general practitioners who are really up against it and a lot of people struggling to cope day to day at the moment. Absolutely. And obviously, Claire, working for... Uh, you know, towards the mental health of doctors with her uh, own foundation of the NHS Practitioner Health Organization, I'm sure is seeing sort of the, the hard end of that in her practice as well. Yeah. Um, one other editorial I want to mention was one from um, uh, Mary Doherty, Mona Johnson and Carol Buckley, which is about supporting autistic doctors in primary care. And that's had a little bit of attention on Twitter as well. And I think the important thing about this one is it's not been an area that we've covered a great deal, but the topic of um, we're delighted to actually cover it and um, neurodive the, the 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 whole need to um, cater for neurodiversity. One of perhaps the the myths that it manages to bust a little bit is the um, certainly the autistic doctors um, uh, autistic doctors international is the organisation and their membership. Um, is made up, I think, mostly of GPs and then um, making up about a third of it and then followed by members who are psychiatrists. The interesting point about this is there are, I think many of us would fall into that trap, that stereotypical trap of thinking of autistic doctors as those, as those being who aren't patient-facing. Um, mm -hmm. Pathology, maybe my, things like microbiology, virologists. But in fact, they make up a really tiny proportion of the... Um, uh, Autistic Doctors International membership. And so it looks increasingly, it looks very much like that's just a myth rather than, rather than anything else. And it suggests some ways that we might go about supporting um, people that do have autism or are more neurodiverse uh, and healthcare practitioners. So I think that's a good one just to kind of challenge some preconceptions. Mm, I missed uh, the sort of Twitter buzz around this. So, what were, were people on Twitter saying about it? Well, I think there was just a, I, I think there was just a recognition that this hasn't been been discussed or hasn't been raised at all, really, almost mm -hmm. entirely. There's there's little bits and pieces of crept through about how to look after autistic patients, I think. But actually, the approach of taking care and championing um, autistic doctors particularly hasn't happened. So, it was quite in that regard. It's been quite novel. Okay, great. Um, I guess there's one more editorial I wanted to touch upon, if that's all right, and that was the interpretation of negative test results um, editorial by Steve Bradley and colleagues. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning that two of the authors of this editorial recently participated in our BJGP cancer webinar, which is still up on the BJGP Life website, I believe. Yep, should be available. Yep. And um, I think the good thing about this editorial in particular is that it provides some really practical advice about what to do with the negative test results. Um, 
and to really consider the presentation that informed the clinical decision to get the test in the first place. So when you get a negative result back, not to then be completely reassured, but to have some clinical uh, thinking around that and um, to think about, you know, why the test was done and what you need to do then going forward with that result. Um, because although we know that most of these sorts of cancer tests have a high specificity, some symptomatic patients will go on to develop cancer in the end. Um, and what I really liked about this editorial was um, the section where they talk about sharing the burden of uncertainty with the patient and talking about what the patient's preference is um, to negotiate a plan about what to do if symptoms persist or evolve further. Yeah, it's, it's a very nice editorial. And um, Steve and Brian and Garth really know the evidence around this really well. And it's just an important point, isn't it? And there's some there's really good practical points, I think, in this editorial that just because you do one test and it's been aware of the numbers and the probabilities around this, you can get dragged in. So they mentioned a little bit about gut feelings, appreciating mm -hmm. that one of the headings being not all normal results are equal um, and mm -hmm. understanding the difference between test results and the safety netting side of things with, I say, good good actionable tips in there as well so um, this is a good one for um just day-to-day -day clinical work it's really helpful and i know that garth um talked a lot about uh this in the bjgp webinar as well about ca125 and what to do with different test results so i think worth worth a listen to that webinar if uh, any of those listeners are interested in this area yeah okay should we move on to research um yeah what are, what what would you like to highlight nada well, I guess, so yeah, as you picked up, so the theme of the issue is prescribing, but I agree this could have been labelled as a deprescribing issue. Um, so there was a lot about deprescribing this issue. Um, there was, I thought, a really interesting paper by Carolina Kuberska and um, her team from Cambridge looking at GP mind lines. Um, and this is, from what I understand, the concept that um, it's the internalised guidelines that GPs that we use to make decisions based on our early training and ongoing experience. So it's an evolving thing, really, and it can be informed by discussions with colleagues or, you know, picking up and reading an issue of BJGP, for instance. Um, and they, they looked at the sort of everyday decisions that GPs use to um, stop antihypertensives in older people with multimorbidity. And not surprisingly, a lot of GPs make these decisions about stopping uh, antihypertensives after a trigger, like your patient has a fall or if someone reports a side effect. Um, so I thought that this was obviously quite interesting. It uh, talked a bit to what GPs' decisions making were like. Um, and they also talked about the impact on the doctor-patient relationship around concerns around you prescribing. Um, and they make the point that it's really sort of an ongoing and improved evidence base around deprescribing that will strengthen GP mind lines as, as they evolve. So I thought that was a really interesting qualitative study from, from the Cambridge unit. Yeah, it's a little bit different, isn't it? And it just, um, it's an interesting concept, the whole idea of mind lines and very much, uh, I, I just say, it's about kind of something you develop over with experience and as you practice and everybody's will appreciate, will, will understand how that feels as you go through your clinical career and how you feel about certain areas will evolve and develop. And they very much, I think they encourage reflective practice more than anything is one of the things that was kind of was pointed out as well. But um, it's an interesting concept. And the whole thing about deep prescribing, I suppose, is that it wasn't really that much of a concept. 
a number of years ago and it has really bubbled up, hasn't it? So actually starting to develop those mind lines about deprescribing anything is now increasingly important. Um, it's also about risk, isn't it? So if you stop a statin or you stop a blood pressure medication, some GPs may be averse to the risk that you know their patient has a stroke in the next three months. How, how would they feel about it? So I think that's an interesting this is a very interesting area to continue to look towards about what GPs' um, thoughts are about deprescribing. Yeah, um, a lot of deprescribing papers, as you suggest. And I'm going to draw attention to two papers, which I'm not going to talk any more about. But one was a systematic review about methanamine um, for you preventing urinary tract infections, which showed, I think showed, let me have to double check now. Um, I've just got it in front of me that it doesn't, wasn't, you know, not really great evidence of any benefit. It is was one of the main things. So perhaps not to use that so much. And the other one was about noratriptyline, which was actually a double-blind randomized controlled trial for knee osteoarthritis. And again, importantly, and we're keen to make sure that we do publish negative results when they come along. It's so important to, in terms of managing publication bias. That noratriptyline didn't significantly reduce pain in people with knee osteoarthritis. So um, two papers which suggest we shouldn't prescribe at certain points, or at least would tilt us towards that direction, that in fact prescribing in these cases is not appropriate. Um, and the fact the lead research article was highlighting um, potentially inappropriate primary care prescribing in people with chronic kidney disease. Um, and uh, there were certainly large numbers that are potentially inappropriate. I think the key thing to point out here, and Claire McRae was the um, first author on this and talked on a podcast as well, um, with us about this is that just because something's potentially inappropriate doesn't mean it was inappropriate. So this, I don't think this is about being critical because you can't recognize all the nuances of clinical practice uh, the way that they did the study and the way they did the analysis. So there are always going to be occasions where we do prescribe medications with careful consultation and discussion with patients that we recognize aren't ideal, but we're balancing risks in uh, different directions. Mm. And talking about drugs that you know we need to discuss with patients, I think there's this um, article uh, from Australia, this team in Australia, looking at um, benzodiazepines, so a drug that can be really difficult to withdraw and some patients might have been on for a really long time. But again, this is a really practical paper um, and they look at the barriers and facilitators to de-prescribing uh, benzodiazepines. And they provide some, in, in the full-length article that's published on the website, that they provide advice about strategies that GPs can use at each step of the de-prescribing conversation to move forward. Um, they look at the different stages, you know, pre-contemplation, contemplation, and what we can do to practically help reduce prescribing in this area. So I think it's really worth a look for any clinicians who want to try this in practice. So I, I think I, I'm definitely going to keep that paper, I think, bookmarked maybe for some of those difficult discussions. Yeah. I, I, I thought this was one of the most clinically useful paper research papers we published this month and really good stuff. And Aaron Oldenhoff was the, the primary author on this. And they actually spoke to Aaron and Petra um, uh, Steiger, Steiger, I should say, um, who was the uh, one of the other authors on a podcast for this as well. And we went through this and the, the authors are all psychologists, but um, they'd spent a lot of time, I had to compliment them on the fact that actually the paper's written really nicely in, in terms of understanding the GP perspective and offering practical and useful solutions. So this is not a paper written by people who are not GPs who then get it all wrong and don't understand it. I, I actually, just, I think we noticed this when it went through peer review as well, that we really commented on the fact that actually they just got the tone right. They understood the difficulties for general practitioners. 
So it isn't just a case of, you know, your discontinued benzos give more education. There was all sorts of, it was much more sophisticated than that with some really good advice. And so if you're got a few patients you're worried about in your practice on benzos and you'd quite like to look at how you might start to have those conversations about discontinuing them, about stopping them. I really think that I, I agree. I think this paper is really worthwhile. There was a table in there which just kind of summarized it really nicely. It's well worth taking a look. And um, as you say, it's one that you can take to the practice uh, and really make a difference with. Yeah, I think I'm going to cut that out and stick it on a board above my desk just, yeah. to, just to look at from time to time. So yeah, really, really good paper. Um, yeah, so th those are the ones that I really wanted to highlight. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to. Yeah, mention. I think their main research papers. I think we should point we should point people in the direction of the um, antidepressant one as well, the long term antidepressant use, because this is something in discontinuation yeah. discontinuation, uh, because this is something that we've covered quite a bit recently. <laughs> I, uh, I think it was on a podcast a couple of months ago, actually, I mentioned that we'd been criticised for having a, 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 an issue themed on mental health where we hadn't mentioned discontinuing antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And we knew we had some in the pipeline there and they weren't quite ready. So there was this paper has come through now. And importantly as well, on BJGP Life, uh, we've been publishing several articles about um, stopping and tapering antidepressants. Um, and a couple of those have made it through into the print issue this time. So one from Ed White about tapering antidepressants. Um, and why, why do as it says here, why do tens of thousands turn to Facebook groups for support? And the other one was four research papers I wish my GP had read before prescribing antidepressants. And mm -hmm. I think um, they're really, I, I mean, I think they really help set the scene and understanding about how we go about um, managing people who want to come off antidepressants. I think these two papers in the Life and Time section are really important also because they give the experience from people who have been through this themselves and uh, talk about what practitioners need to recognise in their own patients who are stopping antidepressants because a lot of the symptoms of antidepressant withdrawal will mirror the original symptoms of the depression itself. And I think that's a point that was made in um, the Stevie Lewis's uh, article. And I, I think it's really worth reflecting on that in terms of, again, practice, some lots of practical things, I think, in yeah. this issue really about what we should be doing and um, how we can uh, support this patient group. Yeah. And I think the, these are nice articles and particularly the Stevie Lewis one, because it's very much that patient perspective, isn't it? But yeah. actually sympathetic to the GP's position and pointing towards some useful evidence as well. So actually to help you understand. So I can't ask for an awful lot more than that, actually, in terms of actually it's really really useful, really constructive, really positive ways for everybody to work together towards um, positive outcomes and people who are trying to, um, well, when you're considering going on to antidepressants or you're trying to help people who want to withdraw from them as well. Yeah. And some, again, ideas about what, what you could do as a clinician, you know, things like um, liquid preparations of antidepressants when you're tapering. I mean, that's not something that I've ever come across or thought about, but it's worth keeping in mind in, in the back of the mind for it. Uh, for certain patients who think that they might need that sort of very slow, long taking schedule. Yeah. It's an awful lot easier than trying to chop a tablet into yeah. one, one eighth portions <laughs> or a capsule. It's just not possible. <laughs> not possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's mostly, uh, there's obviously lots of other articles. Um, Ahmed Rashid, of course, has got his regular yonder. Um, mm. The one that caught my eye there was the one about early menopause, um, which I think was published in, oh gosh, I don't know where, I don't know how Ahmed manages to find these sometimes because it was published in Seminars of Reproductive Medicine, which what is not a journal that I would normally 
be brushing over the table of contents. So Ahmed does an incredible job of lifting these papers out. The early menopause one, of course, being, I, I mentioned, because I don't know if you saw the programs recently about um, early menopause and HRT, which actually was presented by Davina McCall, which kicked off at about the same time as, um, I think, the NHS England um, announcements, pronouncements, mm-hmm. um, which caused some distress. And so there was a bad week for general practice there. Um, but Ahmed's very good at pointing us in the direction of interesting and different research. Mm, definitely worth a look. And I thought that the there's a couple of linked clinical practice papers that I think are definitely worth a look about uh, management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Um, I know that we had a research article a couple of issues back about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but this is a sort of more common heart failure that I think we'd be more familiar with. And then um, uh, another one about patients who should be referred for echoes and uh, who who we don't need to refer. So I think, again, quite helpful sort of um, clinical practice guidelines summarise them in terms of heart failure. Yeah, I like the echo one. And I think it's another one. It's about when not to do something. It's so easy these days. You feel obliged to prescribe or you feel obliged to investigate. So really supporting GPs to help them where appropriate, not to prescribe where appropriate, not to investigate. So um, hopefully those will really help. Um, help people. And, you know, in heart failure, there are some new medications that probably we're not that familiar with. So I think that this uh, clinical practice update is quite useful just in terms of running through some of the more second line uh, pharmacotherapy options for heart failure and, you know, what what the sort of target dose is and a bit of background about them. So I think, I think again, very useful, very useful reading. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I always have this. I I found that heart failure article particularly useful because it's a medication that didn't exist when I was at medical school. And when any medication that didn't exist when I wasn't at medical school, I seem to feel inherently less comfortable with. Can we do one on diabetes? Because I think that's (laughs) that even when I was at medical school, but so much has changed in the last 10, 12 years that I I just... constantly feel out of date on yeah <laughs> i think to be fair i think the one with, the only thing i'd say about that is i think all gps feel a little bit unless you're a diabetic unless you're the diabetic lead in a practice because mm. so much of it is handled with other members of the primary care team as well that we often it's definitely a recurring it's a recurring message isn't it that these are tough to get a handle on so it's not just me then. <laughs> no, no. I think these heart failure drugs are just the same. I'm not even going to try yeah. and pronounce them because I, I can tell, I, I, you can tell you don't really know when you're not 100% sure how to pronounce them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, that's a sure, that's like a sure marker of a medication that has appeared since I was at medical school and I'm not 100% comfortable with. Oh dear. Yeah. So anyway, that's there. It's a really good article. Um, yeah. Several authors, including the um, redoubtable Christina Court, who's written several for us in the past and they're always really helpful. So yeah, I would certainly yeah. would recommend them to people as well. Okay, anything else, Nada? No, I think that's pretty much it. I know it's been a bit of a quick run through the issue this this month, but um, as we've as I've mentioned a few times, I think there's lots of practical tips in this one um, because it's something we do commonly prescribing. So I think uh, it's definitely worth a read through some of the different uh, issues around antidepressants and uh, benzodiazepines, as we highlighted. But I think lots of food for thought, lots of practical uh, tips in this issue. So. Um, I think it's been a good one to to run through. Nada, that's really excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. 
Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thanks again.